Hey, Books and Boba listeners, it's Marvin. As you may have heard, last month marked the fifth anniversary of Books and Boba, and as we enter our sixth year as a book club, we're finally doing something that we've been talking about for years. That's right, Books and Boba now has some merch.、Uh, we're launching a bonfire merch campaign、uh, for our first run of official Books and Boba swag, including T-shirts, sweatshirts, and tote bags. Orders for this first run will be open until October 21st, after which orders will be closed, shipped, and delivered to your homes by November 8th. We chose Bonfire as the platform for this app because it allows us to create a pre-order campaign like this, which will hopefully allow us to earn a little bit more、uh, to support the podcast and to maybe even offer some additional content down the line. To check out what we have to offer, go to booksandboba.com and check out our store link. Um, to be taken to our bonfire portal, there you can check out all of the available apparel and colors, as well as put down your own order. As I mentioned, all sales will go to support this podcast and will allow us to do even more amazing things for Books and Boba down the line. So please check it out.、Uh, it's the stylish way to both support Books and Boba and look cool while doing it. Again, you can find our bonfire store by going to booksandboba.com and clicking on the store link. All right, now on with the show. And you're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rirayu, and we are here today for another great author interview.、Uh, we have Shiran J. Zhao, the author of Iron Widow, a story that's the reimagining of the rise of、um, Chinese Empress Wu Zetian, but in set in a science fiction mecha world. Iron Widow also debuted number one on the New York Times bestsellers list, so we're really excited to have them here to chat with us.、Um, Rirayu, what do you think of the book? Well, everybody knows that I am a big anime fan, so I was like, yes, this is my jam.、Um, I love books that. You know, feature、uh, strong women characters who you know are just like fuck the system. This is this is awful. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love stories that、uh, delves into the roots of、um, issues that our society faces today, like misogyny and capitalism, and、uh, and just like internalized misogyny as well. And I think the book is a very good. It's a very entertaining portrayal of of what it would be like if we had a patriarchal military system with magic robots. Yeah, people listening to this podcast know that I'm a big fan of Asian inspired fantasy, and this book is Asian inspired fantasy science fiction because it takes place, you know, in a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, based on Imperial China. And you know, like Rira, I'm also a big Mecha fan. I love. Gundam. I love Escalone. I love Ava. I love just anything to do with big robots. I love that this is a story about giant robots fighting like Confucian. There seems to be like a couple big bads in a lot of these stories, especially Asian-inspired fantasy. One is capitalism, and two is patriarchy. And it's really cool that we have these stories as like allegory about these real-life issues because 
you know, let's face it, patriarchy, especially in East Asian cultures, is not dead. In, in fact, it's very alive and well even today. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, you do not need to read sci-fi to know that the patriarchy is a terrible thing that still dominates our everyday lives as citizens yeah. in this damn country. Yeah. Well, we have a really great chat with Shiran um, about how they got started as an author, about their book, and about their inspirations. So um, without further ado, let's get to it. Here is our interview with Shiran J. Zhao. And we are here with Shiran J. Zhao, the author of the New York Times bestselling novel, Iron Widow. Uh, Welcome to the show, Shiran. Oh, thanks for inviting me. (laughs) Wow. Number one New York Times bestseller. Like, that's incredible for a debut. I know. It's like, it's kind of surreal because like, what? Um, Especially since like, it's really rare to hit number one as a debut nowadays. So yeah, I don't know how it happened. I guess I I meme my way to the number one. Meme your way. Well, I mean, you are, I mean, essentially like a Renaissance person. I want to say, like, what's like the Chinese way to say like? Inside, right or something like that where no, you really. are not only an author you're also a youtube sensation you have a series of uh videos where you break down chinese stereotypes and folklore in like avatar and mulan and you're also a cosplayer right you also do a lot of uh, a lot of cool stuff yeah um somehow it all just like came together in youtube even though i like never aimed to have a youtube career it just happened accidentally after i um got so mad at the mulan 2020 movie that i was like okay i'm going to make a video about this and then i just like threw the video on youtube literally like i made my channel like five seconds before i uploaded my video just for the purpose of uploading that video and then i forgot about it (laughs) <laughs> and then like three days later, someone's like, oh, my God, your video has like 100,000 views. And I was like, what? <laughs> and now it has like almost three million views. So somehow that happened. I think there was a lot of um, a lot of rage among the Asian community when Mulan, the live action movie, came out. And like we just needed something out there to to pretty much like express all of our discontent towards it. And you did it in <laughs> such a phenomenal way uh, that I, it just like you couldn't help but just go viral. And I I thought it was really, I I was going to ask you later on, but I think this is a good time to ask you, um, like, what did your agent and your publishers think when you uh, launched this YouTube channel? Because usually like publishers are like, hey, we want to promote your book, like make sure to get on TikTok, on Instagram and, you know, be personable and whatnot. And this was just kind of like an accidental viral moment for you. So, uh, yeah, they were pretty happy that... about it. <laughs> oh, they were. Okay. Yeah. And then, like, it meshed really well with your book promotions. It, it, it did uh, somehow. And then, I don't know, I have like a tendency to go viral on various platforms. It's very baffling, but it, I guess it's good for uh, to be to have that power while being in publishing. Because, like, so before my debut week, I like made a f- couple of TikToks and then I had like 11,000 followers on there. And then in my de- debut week, I put out like five TikToks that all went viral. And then I gained like <laughs> 60,000 TikTok followers in one week, like the week of my debut. And I was oh just like, God. what is happening? Like, why do I have this power? I mean, to be honest, your your persona is just so bold. I'm here. You are a... um. 
a S tier shit poster, right? It's like you. I know. <laughs> no, but honestly, yeah. Everything I know about like marketing and going viral is from my years in the Yu Gi Oh fandom trying to convince <laughs> people to watch Yu Gi Oh. Like, literally, that's where my power comes from. I just like keep making posts that are like, oh, this is how I advertise Yu Gi Oh. And at this point, I don't know, like, if I own Konami money for like promoting on the back <laughs> of Yu Gi Oh so much, or like they owe me money for promoting it so much. Didn't you get verified recently on Twitter because of like your Yu-Gi-Oh? <laughs> oh yeah. Post. <laughs> After two failed attempts, two failed requests um for verification cuz um they changed it recently so if you want to get verified as an influencer, you have to like post you have to paste at least like four articles about you and I just like cuz back when my like petition for Yu-Gi-Oh to get into to the Olympics um went viral. <laughs> Like, like a bunch of gaming websites published articles about it. So I just like mass spammed all the links to those articles in the Twitter verification thing. And then like within hours, I, I got my check mark finally. So yes, um, the Yu-Gi-Oh! Olympics petition was what finally got me my check mark. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> but I, like I have to I have to ask. So I, I was looking through your bios. I was kind of stalking you on the internet. And it says that you graduated with a degree in like biochem. Yes, that happened. And now I'm no longer using yeah. my degree, I guess. <laughs> I, I thought it was interesting because of, well, we're in the middle of a pandemic and uh, you were studying in that field and now you are an author during a pandemic. Very, exactly. It's, yeah, very yeah. different journey. <laughs> it is. It's because if I, I guess um, it's because I graduated just at the wrong time. Like I graduated right into the pandemic. So it was hard for me to go out and like think about finding jobs because like how am I supposed to go to all those interviews when we're in like the worst of the lockdown and I think if I had even graduated a semester earlier that I would have gotten a job in like some research lab and I would have been working like on the front lines of um the COVID research or at least I'd be some kind of like lab assistant helping people discover uh, work on the vaccine or whatever but I, I just graduated at the wrong time to get into um the field and use my degree so instead i just like wrote books and i guess that's now my my thing but yeah originally my parents were actually really mad at me they were like okay so you spent all these years in university you got this degree and you're not gonna even use it and i was like well <laughs> there's a pandemic going on where am i supposed to find a job so I had like several big fights with them about that, but now now they're fine. Now now you're a New York Times bestseller. Well, so. yeah, now they have something to yeah. brag about. So of course they're fine. They, do they have any other friends with yeah. children that are New York Times bestsellers? I don't. Think I know so. now they're the weird flex family. <laughs> like before, because okay, they have boomer friends. All their boomer friends have like super successful children. I'm pretty sure there's like one pharmacist who's like also doing law school, and what? there's like an accountant at like one of the big firms or whatever. And and there's an engineer and so like that's all their like boomer friends children so i was always the black sheep of the friend group because i just had mediocre grades um i'm a solid b student and i don't have any like cool accomplishments and i, I was always like the rebellious one so um definitely black sheep among their friend group but, but now they're the weird flex family because they're just like oh like your son got into your your son got into that big accounting firm, huh? Well, uh, Shiran has three hundred and thirty thousand subscribers on YouTube. <laughs> like, how are the other boomers even supposed to respond to that? They're yeah. just like, okay, weird flex, but okay. That's the true power in t the today's digital world. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. If the apocalypse happens, I don't know where <laughs> I would be. Well, growing up, did you do a lot of writing? Like, was this something that your parents had to deal with as you grew up as well? Like, oh my God, I think she runs a writer. What are we going to do? Actually, no. Growing up, my passion was my passion was graphic design. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, I didn't actually like read that many published books and or like write that many uh, th- write that many stories when I was growing up. It's because like my my mom always like pressured me to read the classics and I really <laughs> resented that. So like I was just like, no, I hate books. I don't want to read books. And what I read was like fan fiction instead. And then only recently have I come to the realization that I read all of that because um like fan fiction is where I truly found the queer content that I wanted. And traditional publishing just didn't have that content at the time. So um, I turned to fan fiction instead, but that still made me a reader. And and nowadays, but nowadays I read a lot more traditionally published stuff because um, now publishing is letting in a lot of that like queer content and content written books written by like um, POC, which is really amazing. So now I resonate a lot more with um, what's on the shelves. But yeah, I didn't grow up a reader or writer. It was only like when I was 15 that I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to start trying to write books, I guess. Yeah, and I guess we you're not the first author that we've talked to that's come from the fanfic world where that was the only place for, you know, diverse content back in back in the day. Um uh-huh. we we see a lot of authors coming out from that world and you know, you also join a very prestigious group of super young talented authors that are fresh from college that have written best-selling books that make us, you know, slightly older folk a little a little uh question our life choices, I guess. <laughs> no, it's fine. If you, it, just think about how I like have a whole degree that I wasted. Oh, join the club. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> this whole oh really? <laughs> what did you get a degree in? I got an MBA. Oh my god! <laughs> I have a degree in screenwriting and producing, and um, yeah, do not use it at all. Really? <laughs> it has the closest to her actual degree application yeah, yeah. i yeah. guess i i guess i have actually used my degree at some points but it's definitely not a degree that your parents are like use your degree <laughs> oh yeah it's, it's more like hey when are you gonna apply to law school or grad school oh when, yeah or when are you gonna marry someone rich or stuff oh, like that oh my god <laughs> No, now, like, okay, after I told my parents that, hey, I'm a number one New York Times bestseller. Well, first of all, they didn't, like, realize what the New York Times was. So they're just like, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. If and it's then, not like, the China Times, it's nothing. I know. <laughs> if it's not, like, the Ipulch Times bestseller or whatever. Well, I don't even know if they have a bestseller list. But, <laughs> yeah, they were more impressed by, like, my Amazon orange banners. <laughs> like, like, they were like, oh, my God, your book is number one in young adult alien science fiction. And I just let them be impressed. <laughs> and so after that, like, my mom's like, well, so when are you going to get married? And I was like, damn, I'm a best-selling novelist. And all you care about is if, if I have a boyfriend. It, yeah, okay. like, that's more important if you're a girl in, in like, yeah. the Asian culture. Like, it's just like, no, please. as soon as you reach a certain age, it's like, yo, you're going to be cold rice. Like, you need to find someone to, like marry you right away otherwise like you have no chance and it's like is that yeah i was like what terrible? is this <laughs> what is this internalized misogyny mom don't you realize that i could be at the retirement home and still have people lining up at the door in their walkers come on mom <laughs> i remember when uh the announcement for your book came out and the first thing i noticed was your author photo 
oh my god, uh, <laughs> with yeah. you and your cow. And that was before I like read the premise for uh, Iron Widow, which was you know Pacific Rim meets uh, The Handmaid's Tale, which are two genres that I really love. And but I just I just want to ask, like, what was the story behind your cow uh, author photo shoot? Oh, it was basically a dare, like, I guess a bet with friends. Because, like, seven years ago when I uh, first, well, I guess it's eight years now. When I first started writing, I was just like, well, I went to this writer's conference. And, um, okay, the story is that um, a few days before the writer's conference, I got the cow onesie in the mail. And I was, oh. like, showing it off on Facebook, like, hey, yo, I have this cow onesie now. And then a few days later, I went to the writer's conference. And I also, like, was, like, talking about it on Facebook. And it's one of my friends was like, hey, did you wear your cow onesie to the conference? And I was like, no, but you know what? If I get actually get published, I will have it as my author photo. I mean, so- it looks really well lit. And it, yeah, aside from it being a cow onesie, it looks pretty professional. Somehow, because that's actually, like, a front camera photo, a front, front camera selfie taken by me propping my phone up on my on my bed. So I am surprised that it was able to go to print because it's actually really low quality of a photo. But I guess it looks professional. I mean, how did you convince the publisher to let you use it? <laughs> well, going viral helps. Well, yeah. they did actually be like, hey... Um, we noticed that this photo, the vibe of this photo kind of clashes with the overall cover. Are you sure you want it? <laughs> I'm like, I made a promise to the whole internet. It went viral and everything. I can't back out now. And they were like, we understand. <laughs> it's a matter of honor. Yes. Asian so honor. they, w- Yes. <laughs> but um, I was on the cover of Publishers Weekly last week. And they, when they first contacted my publicist about it, they were explicitly like, we're not using the goddamn cow suit photo. <laughs> Send something else. <laughs> So yes, they're they are still a little like stingy about it. <laughs> yeah, I I would imagine because it's you know Publishers Weekly and you know they're like very by the books. But I mean, okay, but um, yes, every time I um look at my photo, especially like if I'm listed um as part of the attendees of a conference, and you scroll through all the authors with their headshots, and then it's just me and my cow suit. That makes me laugh. I mean, it definitely got my attention when because we do <laughs> we do book news for this podcast, and I was just like. And a lot of the times, you know, I double check the list, like make sure like uh, I haven't missed anyone. But like immediately as I was like mid scroll, I was like, wait, OK, well, this person's Asian, but uh, the cow, suit, <laughs> like, the cow there's suit. a story here. <laughs> I mean, the announcement itself also stuck out, you know, Pacific Rim meets Hands May Tale, um, Mecca retelling of Wu Zetian's rise to power. And I, I want to talk about the log line because. Pacific Rim meets Handsmaid's Tale is like, it's a great way to, I guess, distill it for people who aren't familiar with, like, I imagine the million other inspirations that are in your book, right? Because, like, yeah, there's so much, like, like when I was reading your book, um, memories of watching mecha anime growing up, um, and also Handmaid's Tale is just shorthand for, like, Chinese patriarchy Confucianism, right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> so I only use the Handmaid's Tale because it's, like, the one female dystopia that's more like familiar to Western readers. But actually what I was envisioning was like um, the Gongdo genre with like the harem, like Chinese harem dramas. So yeah. it was closer to that vibe. Cause like <laughs> Chinese harem dramas are female dystopias, right? Like it's all very like, everyone's wearing like big hair, beautiful um, dresses, 
and it's all like very lavish but secretly they're like all plotting to kill each other and it's just a bunch <laughs> of women trapped in this like gilded cage and so for some reason i just really love that genre because i think it's really empowering to see women like being trapped in that circumstance but like rising up anyway and with their schemes so it was more that than like the handmaid's tale but i just only use the handmaid's tale because you know it, it <laughs> so people know it's like oh a no we know we understand we got it wink we got it yes yes but also yes the mecca's <laughs> Did, did they remind you of Digimon? Oh my god. I was about to say, I'm a huge Digimon fan. And like when I saw the pictures for uh, the me- mechas on your website, I was like, yeah. man, I'm getting <laughs> mad Digimon vibes. I yes, love it. Like, yes, they're exactly inspired by <laughs> Digimon. Literally, I used um, a picture of Renamon to my... I gave a picture of Renamon <laughs> to my mecha designer for the oh Ninetale box. <laughs> That's yeah, that's amazing. But I was yeah. I was super stoked because I was a big Digimon fan. I'm a big Mecha fan overall. And it was just so interesting to me that this was taking like ancient Chinese culture with like high modern sci-fi uh equipment and just like melding them into one. And it's something that you don't really <laughs> see anywhere, really. I think it was I think your book was like the first one where I was like, oh, okay, like. We've seen like Neo Tokyo, Neo Seoul with like robots, but we haven't really seen like ancient China or ancient Asia with robots. It it, it just seemed like really new to me. Because I I think that sci-fi, I want more POC written sci-fi. And I think that sci-fi is very like Western centric. Like there's a lot of like adaptations of like, oh, the Roman Empire, but sci-fi. So there's a lot of that. <laughs> So what I did was basically, oh, pre-colonial China with sci-fi because I just love that sort of like genre bending thing. And so essentially I'm doing with all those um, sci-fis, how they riff off the Roman Empire. I'm ripping, I'm riffing off um, pre-colonial China. Yeah. I mean, I'm a little too old for the Digimon craze. So I, I did not catch those references, but I was catching like references from like Ava, right? Creating mechs out of monsters. Um, oh, yeah. you know, Escaflone, like the magical powered mechs. And even like some super robot tropes where, you know, the, the piloting isn't like an actual like cockpit, but like some metaphysical realm where you take control, direct control of the robot. Yeah, of course. That's the that's the only way that like having teenagers pilot the robots makes sense. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure like if it's actually like makes sense by hard sci-fi rules, then you're going to have to like have engineers pilot those yeah uh, mechas with years of training (laughs) yeah i mean like in animes and stuff where they have uh children piloting these weapons of mass destruction you know it's it's a tale on on like how society treats uh treats groups that they consider to be inferior to them and whereas like with gundam for example where like all of the pilots are like young 15 year old boys it's like okay well like you're a teenager you don't really count like you know no one's going to really care about you, so whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then there are also shows where, you know, like, the kids are not actually human. They're, like, genetically engineered. And it's just like, well, you're disposable. So we're going to make you pilot these uh, robots. But it was really interesting that you put a feminist focus on the pilots. Uh, the idea of concubine pilots and how um, a lot of the... A lot of the women pilots, you know, it's certified death for them to uh, go into battle. Whereas like the men, it's a higher chance of survival. And I thought that was a very interesting setup because I haven't 
I hadn't really seen that happening before, even with Pacific Rim, when you have two pilots who are like compatible with each other, usually they end up surviving like 50-50. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, can you talk a little bit more about like how you came up with, I guess, that system with like the gender norms being uh, very, very hardwired into the mecha machines? Well, have you guys seen Darling in the Franks? I see. I think I've seen like a couple episodes. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. Darling in the Franks is where um what inspired me because it had a system where like a boy and a girl must pair up to pilot these giant um mechas. And the thing the that show is infamous for like the girl is on all fours while the boy is like behind. Oh, no. Yeah. Behind her. Um. So it was very, like, fan servicey, but it did get into, like... It is a good show for, like, the first 15 episodes, but then it, like, really goes wild and goes downhill. So the that's why I was, like, so disappointed. Derided. Yes, yes, it is. And so it's a big inspiration for Iron Widow. And I, I felt like it didn't explore the, like, the, the terror or, like, the, the inherent, like, nightmarish setup of this, like, boy-girl heteronormative uh, piloting system. Because in it, like... They kind of treated um, girls and boys, like, equally, but I just thought of, like, what if I had to be one of these, like, girl pilots who's, like, always on all fours and, like, objectified for um, for fan service, and I was aware of it. So I, and it made me realize that this setup is basically, like, a teenage boy's wet dream. Like, oh, you get to pilot this giant mecha and then have this girl on all fours in front of you. Because a teenage boy's wet dream is a teenage girl's, like, dystopian nightmare. So I was like, what if this system was, like, um, exactly how the mechas worked, and then you, like, the girls even died more often, and they were considered disposable. And then you wrote the story from the perspective of one of these girls. So that's, I guess it's, like, my feminist take on the mecha genre and all its, like, fan service and objectification of female characters. Yeah. I mean, mecha stories, the mechas are cool in it, but they're not really about the robots. They're about the world and like war. Yeah. And mm-hmm. yours is about taking down the patriarchy. You know, it's not Confucianism in this world, but it's, you know, we all know it's Confucianism. It is. Master <laughs> Kong. Yeah. I think it's like very, I, I think it's funny how like the Handmaid's Tale was just kind of like a elevator pitch, like an easy way for non-Asian audiences to like realize, okay, yeah, this is a feminist story. Um I, I just feel like with with like a lot of Asian cultures, because the patriarchy is so visible and so ingrained into a lot of our daily routines, uh, there have been a lot of books that explore it. But um, for like the Western side of things, I I don't think they really explored it all all that much, or like in, in a way where it's like that visually polarizing. Yeah, because like nowadays, um, like. I guess misogyny and sexism, there's this illusion that we're past all of that in Western society, even though we're clearly not. So like a lot of people, they write the worlds that where they want it to be um, like gender blind. They want it to be like racially blind. But even though like those issues never really got resolved, but there's a sense that they did. But um, in like East Asian cultures, especially like Chinese culture, where I come from, it's still like very. It's still very, very much blatant. there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the way that you write, the way you wrote this book is just so. I remember reading just even the first part and thinking how, like, I think the only description I had in my mind was this is really like rock and roll. This is like really like just like <laughs> very 
I don't think aggressive is the right word, but very like in your face and very like you are like just putting all your themes out there and saying this is the fucked up shit that's happening. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. I, I do feel like I, I was pretty aggressive in writing it because I basically wrote it in like a two month um, frenzy. I was just like, ah, I'm so angry. I'm going to I've got to write this book, channel all my um, anger into it. And what I don't like is that somehow it's the anger is like always relevant. So like on in every um, stage of my publishing journey, there's like some bullshit going on. Yeah. Anger is always a good you know, source of energy, I think. Yes. And it's a very good source of motivation, which we see in your character as Yaten, because the whole reason why she goes on this journey to becoming a concubine pilot is for vengeance. Yeah. And I was like, I respect that. Like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like, what made you want to do a sci-fi reimagining of Wu Ten? Because this isn't really a retelling because obviously there are robots, but yeah. there are there are characters who did not exist during uh, Wu Zetan's uh, time, and of course, like uh, she's like eighteen years old in um, in this book, whereas like her story as a ruler it goes on for decades, and a lot of a lot of um, pivotal moments happen. So, uh, what yes. so compelled you to make her? Well, the retelling aspect came out right after um, I decided that it was going to be like a um, pre-colonial Chinese aesthetic with like inspiration from the harem drama genre. And like, there is no bigger winner of harem battles than Wu Zetian. So I was like, what if I just made the protagonist a reimagining of her? Because actually, um, I have a really difficult time like coming up with original characters. <laughs> um, like I'm actually not that creative of a person. I can't like spin things out of um thin air. So I was just like, what if I just made this uh reimagining? But I also like to have more fun. I was like, this is Chinese history all stars. So Zhuge Liang's coming in too. Like all those people. Like each province is a separate <laughs> dynasty. So I just wanted to have fun with that. <laughs> yeah, totally. I remember seeing that you in- included like both Zhuge Liang and Sima Yi from the the Three Kingdoms. Yeah. automatically as someone who was familiar with those stories i was like these two are sketch because oh these yeah two are- <laughs> <laughs> well smile is, is especially sketchy yeah. <laughs> right but it's funny because um my editor was like oh my god i love smile i can't believe that he like um did that in the end i was like oh you didn't see that coming everyone chinese would have seen that coming every yeah everyone asian will see that coming yeah uh not want to we don't want to spoil for anybody yes. who is uh who's unfamiliar with us uh, yeah if you if yes. you know you know it's like one of those yeah. <laughs> if you know you know and they're definitely their um, rivalry is going to play a bigger part in the sequel oh yeah i mean i i loved your portrayal of zetian um i think she is a character that is like there's just so many portrayals of her in history and media you know sometimes she's like the heroic concubine sometimes she is like the devious like the prototypical like dragon lady Mm-hmm. And then your version is just like chaos and anger. And I, I really yeah. loved um, her, her energy. I think yeah. it's also because like she is she is young in your book. And mm-hmm. when you're young, you're angry <laughs> all the time and you do make questionable decisions. And so I really like how there's a, the theme in your book is about like how women constantly have to like shrink to make space for insecure men. Yes. And how like women's... Uh, like power and possibility they're always measured in compared to like how is it going to affect the man like is it going to affect his prospects of surviving or or succeeding and i just thought it was like a really 
interesting way to explore all of like the gender norms and uh, dynamics. Um, and I just want to ask, like, what was the trickiest part of um, navigating all of those thoughts? Well, definitely like thinking about all the like feelings and the, sh- the shame that she would have internalized and then her like fighting back against it. Like, especially like, um, like, of course, the mere fact that she's going to become a concubine pilot, but she has to like battle the shame of like, oh, no, I have to like be let myself be used as a sex object. But then everyone has told me that that's a bad thing and I should be um, ashamed of it. And so she definitely like the world uses shame to try and control her. And I read this really good quote. It's like, how do you get a woman to give up her power? You make her feel bad for having it. <laughs> so there's, yeah, shame and guilt are two tools that are, like, frequently used to control women. So I found it interesting to, like, have her combat that. And especially, like, even writing the sequel, I find myself constantly, like, oh, would she be okay with this? Or would she um, would she push past it? Especially since um, people always try to use, like, her sexuality against her. They're always, like, trying to invade her space. And trying to like um, sexualize her into an object, and um, so it's I find it like tricky to do the balance of would she let that happen just so um, it doesn't it no longer has any power over her, and or would she um, or would she like resist like or affirm her boundaries? And I guess she also has that dilemma of are these boundaries? Um, do I ha- do I have these boundaries because? um of like like genuinely like i am uncomfortable with like if i am to be sexualized or do i have these boundaries because the world told me to have these boundaries and it will be um shameful if i let people cross it so there's a lot of like eternal there's a lot of like eternal conflict going on there so this is this is really funny because like yesterday um was my I, I was out of state and I was on a trip and um to kill time I was actually watching your Wu Jetan um videos on on YouTube because you like broke down the history so well and um I just wanted to ask like out of curiosity uh like were you always so knowledgeable about Wu Jetan's life like was um like was Chinese history something that you were always into? Uh yeah, pretty much. Though I only got like really into Chinese history about three years ago. And so I like did a deep dive on her. And especially like she fascinates me because she's like, well, basically, she's like the one female icon that like all Chinese girls like look up to, right? Because <laughs> like she's the only female emperor. And I do think that, well, she's always portrayed in like dramas and stuff but i do think that there is no single drama out there that does full justice to like her journey i think they're too afraid to portray her as like power hungry and like making all these um morally questionable decisions but yeah i find her actual history a lot more exciting than most of the dramas that are based on her yeah i mean didn't she um marry her not her son but like the son of the emperor that she originally was a concubine for and then like took over the throne after that son died, right? Yeah, that, that's amazing because like she went through <laughs> two harem battles. No one else can say that. Well, yeah, very and- few others can say that. <laughs> and it's all mired in you know, like, did she kill her husband or not? 
yeah. we don't know because we don't know. You know historians are are iffy on the details and also all men. Yes, but one thing that they're not iffy on is the fact that Wu Jieten was a great administrator. Yes, uh, for sure. You can't you can't you can't erase uh, that level of competency. Apparently, yes, exactly. Like um, the empire flourished under her. She was very like. She had a lot of good policies for the masses. And of course, like, if the masses weren't happy, then they would have overthrown her so fast because, like, she's a woman. But no, she made it administer. She was really good at picking out competent people and using those people. And um, so they ran her empire very well. So nobody had any complaints except for the confusions at the top. We're like, eh, no, not a woman in power. This is wrong. <laughs> One thing that I, like, found really refreshing about your book was uh, the representation of a of a poly relationship um i haven't read that many that have like polyamorous relationships show in a healthy light (laughs) there's usually some kind of drama and there's some kind of back and forth but like when i was reading it i was like no everybody seems pretty chill yes (laughs) well maybe not maybe chill at the end but it was just like is this okay is this not okay and that's like pretty much like the the level of of like the insecurity yeah. <laughs> and it was really nice because i i was just like i i, I love my my two boys i i love the two cinnamon rolls yeah. <laughs> uh can you tell us a little bit about how you developed that polyamorous relationship was that always in um in your blueprint and did you have a favorite uh i don't know I actually I shouldn't say like did you have a favorite boy because that defeats the purpose of having a poly relationship. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, um yes, it was planned from the beginning because I wanted to do cuz everybody is like a lot of why readers are tired of like always seeing love triangles in Hawaii and having that be like the main source of tension. And I was like, hey, in this book, how about because like this book is all about breaking like gender binaries and gender roles. So how about I do poly because it also breaks that um, the binary expectations that a relationship is between one boy and one girl. So I was like, um, yeah, I wanted to do a poly romance from the beginning and Yes, for sure. Like, I can't actually choose between um, the boys. And that is that is the whole point. Like, so Tian can't choose either. So she's like, hey, how about we all get together? I mean, you two are attracted to each other. So why not? Get ahead of all that shipping wars. It's like, no, they're all in love with each other. Yes. Yeah, it's like, hello, this is this is my boyfriend, Shimon. Yeah. And uh, Shimon, this is your boyfriend, Yuji. Yes. <laughs> like, it's like everybody everybody is happy. Everybody is in love. Yeah. Um, it's, it's always nice to just like, have more representation in romance because I feel like we haven't seen enough in poly, especially in fantasy, which is so weird because it's fantasy. Yeah. You would expect there to be more <laughs> uh, non-binary relationships, but um, we're we're getting there slowly but surely. I know. It's, I think it's because people don't see it in traditional publishing, so that, that's why like people think they can't write it. Because for sure, when I first submitted the manuscript to my agent. My agent was like, um, like polyamory is more of an adult thing, so I'm not sure you can keep it if you're gonna keep this young adult. And I was just like, nah, I'm I am not like breaking the triangle. That cannot happen. <laughs> also, kids these days, they understand. They yeah. understand much more than than we give them credit for. Yes, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Did you did you receive any like angry emails from I guess like parents or <laughs> school teachers? Well, not yet, but like I distinctly remember when my first when my book announcement first came out, there were like two like comments on my Goodreads 
And then like a few days later, one of the commenters changed their comment to be like, oh, I didn't realize that this book was had polyamory. Like what? How could you think that's okay for teens? That causes disease. And I was like, what? what? So at that time, it was like 50% of the reviews. Like it was like one out of two. So I was really freaked out by that. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that this was actually going to be controversial. But then I received a lot of support for it. And I think, yes, the book community is generally happy with it. I don't know if anyone's complaining now because I don't look at my reviews. Um, that's my <laughs> author superpower. I am not enticed to look at my reviews. I have legit not looked at my Goodreads since that incident. So I am proud of I, myself. <laughs> you should be proud of yourself. That is really commendable. Yeah. Um, but it does seem like you look at your fan art and you've gotten tons of fan art from your readers, right? Oh, I know. It's amazing. <laughs> They're drawing all the scenes that I, I envision and I'm like, oh, God, I'm so, I'm so honored. I really enjoyed how you inserted, I mean, as a ethnically Chinese person, I enjoyed all the little like Chinese tidbits you added in, including things like folklore, you know, things like the moon rabbit, things oh, yeah. like the the Huli Jing and like the the Duche, like the familiar bird. And like also like I was wondering the bad guys or the the enemies in your book are the Hunduns. Mm-hmm. And when I was reading them, I like for the longest time I thought, did she mean to call them wontons? And then you did also like lampshade that later on in your book as well. I know. I I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, wontons um, named after how they pronounced Hunduin in the South. Because um, actually the wontons are based on the mythological creature of um, Hunduins. Oh. Like that's what they're supposed to be. Like Hunduins are supposed to be these like um, faceless, featureless, like rotund blobs of chaos. And that actually is what <laughs> wontons are based on, like the myth. Oh, Interesting. I know You're not Chinese enough. Yeah. Right? I guess no, not, I'm, just, yeah. I'm totally joking. <laughs> yeah, so, so in the world lore, uh, wontons came because like there is a tradition in Chinese culture to like make your enemies into like a dish of food that, and then you can eat them. That's true, so yeah. in like my world lore, wontons came about because they were like, oh, those goddamn pesky hunduns always attacking us. We're going to make this into a dish. Um, this is like hundun soup and we're going to eat them. <laughs> so yeah, that in my world lore, that is how wontons came about. Amazing. So out of all of the the mecha robots, which one do you think um, you would pilot? Like what element, what chi would you have? Oh man, um, I think I'm for sure like a fire person. And <laughs> I think I would like to pilot the nine-tailed fox just because I don't want something too big. And the nine-tailed fox seems like a pretty... Um, a pretty pretty nice unit um like mid-sized well it's technically supposed to be one of the biggest but like it's not as big as the vermilion bird the vermilion bird <clears throat> flying would be cool but i'm not sure if i'm like ready to handle that yeah yeah that's i i, I can i can see it you as like a fire uh cheap person yeah. <laughs> like i'm definitely not as like cold and calculating as Zetian. i'm more impulsive yeah i mean you mentioned that you had a mech designer like did you contract someone because you needed to know how the mechs would look or did you like did they design it to your specs oh yeah i so i contacted i was on twitter and i was like hey anyone know any good mecha artists out there so that's how i found um geo manning who designed the vermilion bird and um he was really amazing and then i went on fiverr and i was i just searched up mecha designer <laughs> and that's how i find, found satodra who like designed all the other mechas wow i've always wanted to like commission the mecha designs because i think um it will be really cool, like supplementary material, right? And hopefully they can be printed in the paperback because I didn't yeah. get them in time for the hardcover because I don't think my publisher wanted to like waste ink on that. But 
Yeah, maybe the paperback will have the designs. Oh, that would be, that would have been awesome to have like illustrations in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the book ends on a cliffhanger, and you you mentioned you're working on the second book. Any updates on that? What's how's that going? Um, <laughs> so the second <laughs> book has been a lot more tough to draft for sure. So it's not. <laughs> It's not coming along as smoothly as uh, Iron Widow itself, but you know what? I am like making progress through it. Yeah, I heard that like the the second book is always the the hardest one <laughs> one to write. Yeah, because yeah. like all the rules of the world are established, and you can't go against what you said in book one. So it's like, and yeah, like, but for sure, I can tell you guys that the second book will um, definitely have a much stronger antagonist. Oh, nice, nice. Like in Iron Widow, the antagonist was just like society itself and the patriarchy. But in book two, there will be a specific person that like makes life hell for Zetian, but also like she needs to depend on him. Oh, that's that's the worst. Like yeah. when you were saying like, oh, yeah, the antagonist in the first book is about society. And I'm like, society is such a bitch. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like biggest antagonist you can you can have. Um, but I'm really excited uh, to read the sequel to Iron Widow. Uh, is there a yeah. title for it? I cannot reveal that. Oh, yet. no. Oh. OK. Yeah. There goes our exclusive. I know. I yeah. tried. <laughs> Next book is. Well, I can say that it's going to be. Because in in book one, I tackle some like straight up, oh, like take down the patriarchy. But in book two, I'm going to like, um, I'm going to explore the like anti-feminist backlash. So it's going to be like Zetian versus the alt-right, the far right, like <laughs> oh, gosh. Who, thinks, who thinks like, oh, like losing rights means um, we're being oppressed. So it's going to be like her versus wow. the alt-right. And the, and the antagonist this is this like Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro kind of guy who's like, <laughs> oh, Mr. Gaslight, gatekeep the girl boss. So that's going to be him. Wow. Amazing. And cannot wait. Yeah. Well, Shiran, congratulations on the success of your book so far. Um, oh, thank you. Look forward to all your future successes. And thank you for so much for joining us on Books and Boba. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. And that was our chat with Shiran J. Zhao, the author of Iron Widow, um, available now on booksellers everywhere. Um, if you haven't read it yet and are interested in the book, definitely check it out. It's also available for purchase at the Books and Boba Bookshop. Uh, we do have an online bookstore uh, where we have several lists, hand-curated by Rira, um, of books by Asian and Asian American authors, including all the books that are featured in our podcast. And any books bought on that platform does help support Books and Boba. Yes, yes. We finally have merch now. So Yeah, we have Yay. merch too. So we have launched our Bonfire campaign, uh, selling our first run of Books and Boba merchandise to celebrate our fifth anniversary. Um, just a quick uh, just a quick reminder just a quick reminder on how Bonfire works. Um, it is a limited time campaign. So you have until October twenty first to put in your order for a Books and Boba t shirt or sweatshirt or tote bag and after the order period closes um all the orders will be shipped out so you'll be so you will be receiving your books and mobile merch um by november i believe 8th yeah. so they are only available for a limited time so if you are interested in rocking some books and mobile merch um just head over to booksandboba.com and click on the store button on the main navigation and that'll take you to our um, bonfire shop very excited that we have merch that's true yeah, yeah. I'm going to buy five and I'll be my everyday rotation. I'm going to be that guy who just wears my own merch <laughs> every day. I'm probably, yeah, I'm probably going to get the tote bag for myself simply because I 
that's all I carry these days. I, I use a tote bag for all of my bags. <laughs> I don't carry any like purses or anything fancy because I just carry a whole bunch of shit in my bag. <laughs> Usually it's like two books and it's like, why is this in here? Am I really going to be reading this while I'm out getting coffee? Probably not, but you who know, knows? I think about that all the time and you never know when you might need to pull out a book i mean i have I, I literally have like 20 books on my phone that i have not i have i have just bought because it was on sale and i'm like oh yeah i'm gonna read this at one point and then i buy a physical copy of the book and it's like it's here even though i have like 20 books in my phone that i haven't read yet i don't know why i bought a physical book the struggle is real you know yeah you know if this tote bag <laughs> will help you curb your uh book buying habits hopefully (laughs) by having books that you're supposed to read in your bag it will prevent you from buying more books yeah that you don't need anyway all right so um rira please remind us what our book club pick is for october 2021 um we are reading the inugami clan by not clan curse right it's curse Um, yeah it's yeah so for our listeners um there's a new printing of this book that came out like I think last year that changed the name and that version is the most readily available so it could be clan or could be curse I think if we use it interchangeably from now on please just you know be understanding but yeah okay so but our October 2021 book club pick is the Inugami curse or the Inugami clan by Seshi Yokomizo Uh, This book came out in the 1950s, and it is one of the oldest Japanese uh, detective novels that are out there. Uh, So, yeah, this is supposed to be some, uh, I guess, like, theatrical, campy murder mystery. You'll probably notice a lot of the same, uh, like, mystery tropes that you see in, like, uh, Sherlock Holmes, because uh, the author, Sashi Yokomizo, was known as the Conan Doyle of Japan uh, during his time as an author. So um, I'm really excited to read something spooky for Spooktober. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah, I'm excited to, because um, we've done a lot of cozy mysteries. We've done some like noir mysteries. This is our first like detective story in a while. And um, it'll be, I'm interested to be introduced to this um, new gentleman detective. Um, is he going to be more like Sherlock? Is he going to be more um, Poirot? Like what kind of detective is he? I don't know. Yeah, uh, we'll be discussing this book at the end of the month. So if you have finished the book ahead of time, please let us know on our Goodreads forums. I will not read those comments until after I finish the book because I do not want to know who the killer is. But uh, until then, thanks for listening to Books and Boba. Uh, thanks again to Shiran Jaisal for joining us on this episode, and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American-hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening.
Hello, I'm Phil Yu, and I'm the host of All the Asians on Star Trek, the podcast in which I interview all the Asians on Star Trek. I'm talking to actors, writers, directors, stunt people, background extras. You know, all the Asians on Star Trek. Find out more at alltheasiansonstartrek.com. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Live long and prosper.